You guys have seen What If Captain Carter? Yes. Yes. Cool. Did you guys watch it? You watched it the day it came out, right? Both of you? Uh, I think we were like the next day, Thursday or Friday. Okay. Yeah. We it was watched pretty it quickly. I don't remember if we watched it the next day or not. But um, what were your what were your thoughts? Sure. Uh, I want like a three hour movie about Captain Carter. Yes. <laughs> That's how I felt. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. And it could basically all just be a montage of her smashing Nazis, and I would watch it. Uh, yes, my, 100% agree. My favorite thing that happened is this guy sees her, this big German, sees her stop a car with her shoulder, um, beat the living crap out of literally 20 guys, and then he gets out and he's like, a fragile Fraulein. <laughs> Can't believe they'd send a woman. And it's like, you, you saw what happened, right? She tackled a car. Yeah, Asian Carter like shouldering and flipping a car. Uh, I love it. Yeah, I could watch it over and over again. Yeah, it was great. And then just standing in in front of the truck and like hitting Nazis on each side, like as they came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just keep going. Yeah, keep doing that. <laughs> I felt like it could have been longer. I told you guys this in the text thread that we had going. Um, I I very much enjoyed it. I think it sounded like I didn't like it in the in the text thread. That's not what I was saying. I just wanted like twenty minutes more to like just flesh it out a little bit better because there were times where I really did feel like it was just like boom 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 just yeah, going. At, at times, it felt almost like a Cliff Notes yes. version of it. You know, like yeah, this happened and this happened. So, and it also I think it's because go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think it's because that they were like trying to basically retell the entire first Captain America movie. Yeah. Yeah. In 20 minutes, which you just can't do. No. And because of that, it also definitely depended on you having seen Captain America First Avenger, which like probably everyone watching has. But I did think while I was watching it, if you hadn't, or even if it had been a long time since you had seen it, like, how much of this are you picking up on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you can still follow the basic story, but it would feel even more just like rushed and piecemeal, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like knowing yeah. knowing the first Avengers story, like as soon as you see the train pop up, right? And yeah. And they're going to assault the train. You're like, oh, okay. This is where, you know, this is where they lose Bucky in mm-hmm. the original. So I wonder what they're how they're going to twist that here. So. But she saved him. Did what Steve couldn't do. But she lost Sharon Steve. is better than Steve. But she got him back at the end. Yeah. I think... Um, not I think. I read a bunch of hate on the episode because incels. Um, but they were like, oh, so suddenly Howard Stark can just make an Iron Man suit? Um, he didn't have the Tesseract. That's time. exactly what it was. And that's the people in the comments were like, well... He pointed out that he could use it as a power source in the movie, and then, but he didn't have it. And in this, he does. So he used it. And I was just like, "Why? Why?" This is this is a uh, observation that neither of you are going to get, but I'm going to make it anyways. There's a show called Legend of Korra, and one of the best characters is this guy named Varric, who has like extremely manic energy, but he's like an inventor. Uh huh. And Howard Stark had like very much that energy in this, just like manic, kind of off the wall. Mm-hmm. 
It was fun. That's actually one of my one of the things I didn't like about this um, was was Howard Stark's like weird. He was a different character than he was in the movie, and it's the same actor yeah. playing him, but he was written just different. Yeah, and it's the same. It's the same voice actor who was in the Peggy Carter series, I think, as Howard as Howard Stark. No, oh, it's the same guy in the movie too, I believe. Well, they they recast Howard Stark like three times. Did they? So he's in one of the movies. It's the guy from Preacher was in the one in What If, and I don't know if he was the one. He's, I think he's the one in, he's definitely the one in uh, Endgame and maybe one of the other ones. I don't know. But no. they, they recast him at least once. Interesting. I know this from studying trivia for MCU trivia. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also. I appreciated his little. Oh. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. No, you go ahead, please. I appreciated his little uh, reference to Hedy Lamar, another amazing inventor. And a woman. What was that? I think I'm Hedy Lamar. The reason we have Wi-Fi and can do all this now. What was the reference? I don't. I can't remember if I remember it. He made a. Joke uh, about- I think he says something about like having a date with her. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, it was Dominique Cooper who played Howard in this, and then he played him in the first one, but I don't think the second one. I don't think he played him in. He just played him in the original Avengers, like first Avenger. God, I can't talk. But he played him in this too, and it's the guy from Preacher. Yes. Interesting. Okay. But yeah, the character was just different. Did you guys do you guys think that the uh big monster was Shoma Goroth? I don't know because I don't know what yes. that is. You do think it is? I just don't know what else it would be. It it but... makes sense, right? So yeah. Seth, just so you know, uh Shoma Goroth is uh on again, off again Mar- Marvel villain. Um he basically looks like a big starfish, um, but instead of having like tentacles, like starfish tentacles, like uh, Starro in Suicide Squad, they're right. like they're more like octopus tentacles. Um, but it is just a giant eyeball with a mouth and tentacles. Um, but at one point, like it ruled Earth and demanded human sacrifices, and there's a whole storyline with Doctor Strange like fighting it, and it's basically an eldritch god. Yeah, gotcha. I really appreciated that it like just marked Red Skull right away. Yeah, that was satisfying. Just crunched him. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you, Sheridan. I don't know. I was trying to find if there were any other tentacle monsters in Marvel, and there's like a couple, but none that would make sense. Also, just yeah, I assume that was the reference. Searching tentacle monsters on the internet is never safe, so I learned Danger. that the hard way today. So. Right, got to use that safe search, Josh. Yeah, didn't didn't see that. And one. a and a private browser. Yeah, <laughs> not your work computer, that's for sure. Okay, <laughs> don't mess up your algorithm. <laughs> my algorithm is just sad at this point yeah okay you guys want to get into it let's go let's do it Welcome to Amateurs Assemble, a comic book book club podcast for you, whether you're new to comics, a regular at your friendly local comic store, or just looking to talk about your favorite heroes. I'm Sheridan. I'm Josh. And I'm Seth. And we've assembled to work through some issues together. Last time we covered issues number 34 to 42 in Ed Brubaker's Captain America run. 
This week, we're diving into issues one through seven of Truth, Red, White, and Black by Robert Morales. Each week, we'll begin by providing a little background that you might need to know, or that will at least enhance your reading. So Josh, tell us, who the hell is Captain America? So before I get into my my deep dive here, I want to say this was a little bit more difficult than I thought it was going to be, because there is so much canon and not canon and different variations of Cap. So it's a big question. It's, it's almost like the character has been around like 60 years. Or I something. know, right? Yeah. For the sake of clarity, I'm only going to go into the 616 universe versions of Captain America. I could go into the what ifs, the alternate universe versions, the various ultimate universe iterations. But I think for simplicity's sake, that if we stick to 616, it'll make a lot more sense. For... You should explain 616. I'm sorry. Universe 616, which is the Marvel Prime universe where most right. of the stories take place. Right. Marvel has a numbering system for... Mm-hmm. All of its various spin-off universes. Mm-hmm. And um, 616 is... 616 is the, the main one. The main Marvel universe where most of the comics take place. Mm-hmm. And it's our universe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We think. So there's also a lot of like timey-wimey future pasty stuff um, where some of it is in 616, some of it's not. And so I'm just going to stick with up to like the present in, in the comics. Uh, I'm not going to go into like Captain America 2099 or uh, Danielle Cage, who's like a future version of Captain America. She's the daughter of Luke Cage and Jessica Jessica Jones. And then there's also Raja's, the Neil Gaiman 1602 version. That's a time traveling version of Cap, who's kind of problematic. (laughs) Anyway, we won't be talking about any of those uh, other than just this right here. So let's start by getting the obvious out of the way. Steve Rogers, uh, Captain America prime. He's the first one to wield the shield and a hero. Everyone thinks of whenever you say Captain America. However, just because Steve was first doesn't mean that he's the only one, obviously. So through eight decades of publication, there have been multiple iterations of Captain America and not all of them were Steve Rogers. Uh, Marvel's official write-up on the Marvel website has an actual, they have an actual section called Multiple Captain Americas or He Who Wields the Shield. That official caption states that despite all of these people being different, uh, they all share Cap's sense of purpose, that they're all special men and women that have Steve's ability to inspire hope. That seems to be the most important trait for becoming Captain America, the ability to inspire those around you to not only be better, but be actual heroes. There's been so much retconning and changing of the stories as well as origins that it's really hard to get a perfect timeline here. So I'm just going to kind of hit the big highlights. Some of them we've actually already covered. I would say most of them we've already covered in this uh, run that we've done over the last five episodes. Yeah. Four I, feel episodes. Like, I feel like Brubaker worked a lot of them into yeah. his arc. Definitely. So the, the, the big different one that I'm going to talk about because I don't 100% know where it falls in canon. It is Earth 616, so it is it is like canon Captain America, but it's it's in a weird spot. Rick Jones does some time traveling and he's sent, it's of course it's Rick Jones. He's sent back to World War II where he's rescued by Captain Bucky. And in this version, it's not Steve Rogers, it's Private Roger Stevenson. <laughs> and <laughs> at some point Bucky gets killed and Rick becomes Bucky for a little bit. Um and then Stevens Stevenson becomes president afterwards. At the end, it's it's a whole thing. It's hazy where it falls, like I said, but it does technically count. So I wanted, you know, I wanted to be included here because Rick Jones kind of makes it canon in and of itself because he's just, as Sheridan pointed out <laughs> a little while before, Rick Jones is kind of all over the place and does kind of everything. This is the one we were talking about who has like the tell-all book or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. 
that Sheridan right. read snippets yeah. from. Well, but that, I don't know if that was this version of Cap, though, is the thing. I have no idea. No, I don't think it is. I think it's a different story. There's also a really famous... The Cap he's with is Steve Rogers, I yes. believe. That's, and but that's... then also this other guy. Well, I th- and I found other stuff talking about Rick Jones being back in World War II with Steve Rogers. So I guess there were two Rick Joneses back in the 40s. Anyway, it's all confusing and comic books are a thing. But there is a really fun picture of this version of Captain America wearing a cowboy hat. And he looks like <laughs> cowboy Captain America. And then Rick Jones just looks like Bucky. Look it up. It's fun. And then obviously there's Isaiah Bradley. Uh, he's mentioned in Falcon of the Winter Soldier. And I would also include his unit of super soldiers in this list. We're going to talk about them in this Truth, Red, White, and Black that we're going to be covering in this episode. So I'm not going to spend too much time on them at the moment because we're going to cover them at length here in just a second. We've also already covered Bucky Barnes as Captain America, so I'm not going to go into detail there. Sam Wilson is the current MCU Captain America and has been on again, off again Cap in the Marvel comics in Earth 616 for several years now. It's well accepted that he is worthy of building the shield and has done so numerous times. There's also John Walker, aka US agent. He briefly wielded the shield before going insane and battling it out with Captain America in Supersized Issue 350 featuring Spider-Man. After that, he became US agent and is kind of an on-again, off-again hero. He's a member of the Thunderbolts. Sometimes he's a villain, sometimes he's a hero. He's featured in also Falcon of the Winter Soldier. William Burnside, we covered previously. He's the Cap who went insane and we have mentioned previously was known as the 1950s Cap alongside Jack Monroe, aka 1950s Bucky. This is one of the weird ones because Burnside was the one that received all the plastic surgery and changed his voice and his name and his identity to look exactly like Steve Rogers, which plays into the arc we just covered. And to be Steve Rogers again. Yeah. He changed his name. He is Steve Rogers. Yeah, legally changed his name. So I wanted to cover the offshoots and I didn't even get them all. There's dozens. But we have Elijah Bradley, who's the grandson of Isaiah Bradley, and he's a young Avenger called Patriot who, while not technically Captain America, falls into the same vein of sidekicks and Captain America tangent characters, such as U.S. Agent, Red Guardian, Captain Britain, Captain Canada, American Dream, Miss America, and many, many, many more. Couldn't list them all. There's so many. All in all, it was pretty convoluted and an insane deep dive that I don't want to do again. (laughs) 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 To try and bring it all together was difficult. But I feel like this gives you a small overview of the main players who have wielded the shield as Captain America. If you guys like, we can go into part two and talk about future iterations, alternate universe iterations. Um, Because there's a lot of weird stuff out there. There's a version of Planet Hulk where there's Gladiator Cap, um, who's just Steve Rogers who grew up on a like warrior planet. There's Captain America 2099. There's so many and they're all kind of interesting. It's eight generations of comics. So yeah, but that's uh, that's your somewhat deep dive into the various people who have wielded the shield. So now you're up to speed on who Captain America is, hopefully. All right. (laughs) Let's get into the issues. Issue number one. We open on the World's Fair. Queens, 1940, Isaiah Bradley and Faith Bradley smile at the camera in front of African-American sculptor Augusta Savage's iconic sculpture, The Harp, a real-life 16-foot-tall statue that was built out of painted plaster. I want to briefly talk about The Harp before we get into it because the history is kind of interesting. So it's inspired by the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, and it was made by Augusta for the World's Fair. And the statue was displayed prominently outside of the arts building at the World's Fair for the entire run that year so the in the comics we talk about how there's like a, a like an african-american like blacks only week that they had there that was a real thing that that did happen and that's gonna come up a lot i think in this it's like we'll talk about an event that's in the world and then it'll be like actually that was real yeah 
yeah, several times throughout yeah, this whole there's run. There's actually a lot of history in this brief yeah. series. And so it was displayed outside the arts building. And sadly, it was actually destroyed at the end of the fair by bulldozers. So a white-owned construction company was hired to clean up the fair and purposefully targeted most of the art that was anything black related anything african-american related was purposefully destroyed and that's just a tragedy um she does go she went on to become a professor from what i understand and has you know sculptures she's regarded as one of the great american sculptors so but yeah i just thought that was a really interesting thing and because i didn't i I hadn't actually the the harp was so prominent in multiple parts of the of the story like it's the first image and last image in this whole run and so i was like there's got to be something to that and that made me research it and it was a whole rabbit hole that i just found was really cool anyway isaiah and faith enjoy the world's fair as the fair commission has allowed for one week of admission for african-americans for the admission cost of 75 cents a price which faith reports quote can buy you the dream of equality for a whole day. That is until somebody decides it doesn't, she goes on to say. The merriment ends when they're not allowed into a burlesque show is what I took it for. Is that what it was? That's how I read it too. Okay. They're not let into yeah, a burlesque show. So the man at the admission booth essentially telling Isaiah and Faith that their presence would make the women uncomfortable. The very nervous and pretty overtly racist man telling them that despite the fact that black people are in fact allowed in the world's fair for the week, the girls would be, quote, upset to be looked at like they were animals, which I'm not sure what all the white dudes going in there were doing. But anyway respectfully ogling respectfully my ogling's respectful you see we don't see if isaiah actually hits the man but it is implied by his clenched fist and in the next frame moving on to meet our next character maurice canfield he is first seen with a swollen black eye bloody nose a bloody lip and a swollen jaw frightening his family's butler asking to see his parents he meets with his mother who informs him that his father is going to have a fit when she sees the state that he's come home in he and a friend had gone to organize some I always say this wrong. Stevedores? Stevedores. Yeah, that's right. And had been met with violence and prejudice being a black man and a Jewish man trying to talk to white dock workers and help them organize. His mother calls him an atheist, socialist, reckless love. She says it with both affection and a mother's scolding. You can tell that despite her disagreement with his methods, she's proud of her son and his willingness to stand up for what he believes in. Oh, I was just going to say, like, there's definitely some, um, there's some pretty clear, like, class stuff here with the Canfields. The Canfields are more yeah. well off they're respectable mm-hmm. you know they live so. in a townhouse they have a butler they yeah so having the son go off and organize steve stevedores to like strike and yeah be to, socialists trying is, to unionize and bring communism and getting beat up for his efforts is mm-hmm. uh not not their ideal no so from there we're introduced to our next character in cleveland he's playing billiards his name is sergeant luke evans another former uh, soldier of his approaches him and calls him black cap and he goes on to explain how he's been busted down to sergeant after he fought for an mp who murdered a black man on base to be punished Uh, when the commanding officer called the dead man a trifle that he couldn't be bothered with evans had shoved the commanding officer and was demoted so we jump from there to an aerial shot of pearl harbor happening in real time we immediately jump back to Cleveland with Sergeant Evans. Some time has passed, and we see him sitting in a dark room with a bottle of whiskey to one side and a gun in his hand, clearly ready to commit suicide. He hears the U.S. is entering the war from a neighbor yelling about it, and he puts the gun down and picks up the whiskey. Well, all right, he says. We jump to Philadelphia, and Maurice is standing trial for sedition, just going more into the fact that he's been 
<laughs> openly protesting the war and giving us a little bit more character development on, on him. He's been arrested for protesting against the war effort itself and is given the option of doing 20 years hard labor or enlisting in the army. I wonder which one he picks. We jump back to New York City and Isaiah is telling a very pregnant Faith that he will return. The issue ends with a caption in Faith's words informing us that it was the first day of the worst days of her life. We find ourselves now at Camp Cathcart in Mississippi. A line of black soldiers walk by covered in mud and worse after digging latrines in a cow pasture. As they march past a building, we shift inside where the major, Mr. Brackett, is having a conversation with a Mr. Tully and Dr. Reinstein, who is a psychiatrist and surgeon working with the government to enhance the combat performance of troops. The doctor and Mr. Tully are looking for two battalions of black soldiers who they can experiment on because they want to make sure their methods will work on the, quote, inferior races. The major is still unsure why they need two entire battalions of black soldiers, but Tully tells him about what they call the black vine, supposedly a secret means black people have for spreading news by word of mouth. A method so effective, according to the doctor, that Hitler himself envies their methods. When the major asks whether they are training the men to be counter spies, Tully replies, What I'm saying is, this project is classified. What I'm saying is, we don't need all these men. Back in the barracks, the men are exhausted and dirty, but any attempts at cleaning up or napping are interrupted when Sergeant Lucas Evans comes in with their mail. One of the men asks him why they are stuck doing the dirty work, and Evans tells them that everything they're being put through now is preparing them to fight. You might have to engage the enemy hand to hand, he tells them, clawing each other's face to get any advantage. He warns them that the enemy might stink or they might be taken unaware by the smell of death. In moments when hesitation can lead to dying, he hopes his men will be ready. Isaiah Bradley proudly shows off a black and white photo he's received of his wife, Faith, and their new baby girl, Sarah Gale. One of the men says the family back home is what they're fighting for, but another soldier named Larson tells him, not me, brother. He's not looking to defend his family. He's looking to kill some white men. Just keep one thing in mind, Evans says. Killing white men is a gift you only get from other white men. In response, Maurice Canfield holds up a pamphlet that reads, Democracy, double V for victory at home and abroad. And he asks what Evans thinks of it. The sergeant is quick to dismiss it as nothing more than a symbol, which is fine for non-combatants, he says, but doesn't help anyone win on a battlefield. If you have to fight, shouldn't you fight for the right things, Canfield asks. But when another soldier makes a joke out of his concerns and they all laugh, he storms off. While attempting to use a urinal, he's ganged up on by a group of white soldiers who mock him. He takes the first swing, but is quickly overpowered. The white soldiers look ready to kill him when they are interrupted by Major Brackett, who tells Canfield to return to his unit and sends the white boys on their way. 
When Kenfield arrives back at the barracks, the men are told by Evans that that night they'll be participating in a special night training exercise, traveling without weapons or gear to a classified location. Larson is suspicious, as he should be. When the men have gathered, Colonel Walker Price from military intelligence shows up and tells Major Brackett that he is being relieved of duty and the camp is being shut down. The colonel then draws his gun, shooting Major Brackett in the head as he tells him, Camp Cathcart never existed. The soldiers who have gathered look on in shock. Before they have a chance to even process what is going on, 300 of them are loaded onto truck while the rest are left behind. As they drive away, they hear gunfire in the distance. And we know now what Mr. Tully meant when he said they wouldn't need all of the soldiers. The remaining men in the battalions are massacred to try to keep the news from making its way through the Black Vine. It really does change your perception of Erskine because Erskine and Ryan... Reinhardt are the same person. Wait, what? So in the comics and in the movie too, like Stanley Tucci's character, er, mm-hmm. um, Erskine, Dr. Erskine is Reinhardt. Okay. Like they're the, the same, they're the same this, person. Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so he would go on from this to like all the stuff that he did with Captain America that'd be painted as kind of a hero when really he was awful. Yeah. I can't remember how much he was involved in this part of it. Cause he's just like the doctor, but I mean, he's definitely involved in the, the the experiments to come. Yeah, for sure. As well, we'll get into with issue well, and, three. And in this issue, he definitely knows that they're taking 300 of them yeah. and then killing the rest of them, too. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't remember if he knew that or not. Yeah, he's there. That was shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's as, brutal. A lot of this is. It really is. Like, it paints a different picture for... Um, it's it's very different for a Marvel comic. Like, it's really... It's dark. It's just really dark. It's, it, yes. So, that brings us to issue three. Issue three is titled The Passage, referencing the middle passage of the slave trade of history and suggesting dark days ahead for our characters. We open here with bulletins delivered to the three families back home the canfields faith bradley and some of sarge's friends in cleveland these bulletins clearly indicate that their loved ones are dead at the project super soldier facility colonel price tries to order negro blood before being told there's no difference to caucasian blood after ordering ten thousand units of blood colonel price then asks his assistant lieutenant Merritt how he'd feel if Negro blood was used to save his life. I'd rather die, Merritt exclaims. And here I want to talk about the art, which we haven't brought up yet. Mm, yeah, um, It's drastically different than the normal Marvel comic art. Um, it's much more cartoonish. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in places such as here, the juxtaposition of that cartoonish art is a jarring contrast to the ugliness that we're presented from the characters it's it makes for a very interesting read Mm -hmm. from here we move inside project super soldier and we see a naked black soldier strapped down to a table a nurse administers five cc's of the serum and then the patient is abandoned in the room after a few calm panels the soldier begins to strain and then bursts impossibly huge muscles 
before literally bursting and exploding, blood splattering all across the observation. Mm -hmm. In the next few pages, we jump back and forth from the loved ones back home as they mourn in their own ways, a respectable funeral for the Canfields, drunken toast by Sarge's friends, and that's interspersed with panels of the continued experimentation at the secret project. Private Larson, uh, as we said, he was the one earlier who said he wanted to go kill some white men. He's the first to come back alive from the experimentations. A welcome sign to the remaining others, even if he's now impossibly muscled and with a misshapen head. Uh, Side note, I know that that's the second time that I have said impossibly muscled here, but there really is not another way to describe these pictures. Yeah, I mean, it's it's they're like <laughs> tiny versions of the Hulk. I like, mean, they're just insanely the muscles. They're not. If the Hulk had muscles on top of his muscles, <laughs> <laughs> they look like those old old cartoon drawings of Conan the Barbarian, like just insanely stacked, like steroids on steroids. Yeah, it's it's definitely wild. <laughs> Ultimately, through the experimentation, we end up with seven soldiers that live through the serum including our main kind of our main three characters through this who are isaiah bradley sarge evans and maurice canfield we get two other major scenes in this issues with loved ones back home as they mourn after insisting on seeing isaiah's body faith reacts in shock though we don't yet know why we then get a page with maurice canfield's parents believing his son to be dead mr canfield kills his wife and then himself Later, we're taken to a party where Dr. Reinstein, Tully, and Colonel Price celebrate their success, despite the doctor's misgivings. Price indicates that the project is headed out to test the super soldiers in the field and try to take out a mirror Nazi program. The super soldiers board the HMS Pinchon and are ushered below decks, again with the issue being called The Passage, a clear parallel to the slave ships of history. One soldier, Jack, isn't feeling quite right but the doctor isn't available to visit him until the next morning. Isaiah sits with Jack while the rest of the super soldiers play poker. I think it should be noted that the doctor wouldn't come see him. It's not necessarily that like he couldn't see him. Like it, it seemed to be implied that he wasn't going to come down there. I mean, it wasn't really clear why it, you could, you could also read it that like Sarge was not going to go get him. That's true. You could until morning, but maybe it's just like, yeah, they weren't, they were going to be left to their own devices until. Yeah. I mean, they were put below deck away from the other soldiers in like a storage room. Yeah. Which kind of made me think like, no, they're not, no one's going to come. And I think that's definitely the case. After Sarge wins a big hand playing poker, someone asked him, what's the biggest battle that he's fought in? He shocks them all by saying it's the red summer in Washington, DC after world war one. Yeah. Sarge tells them the awful tale while Jack lays dying. A rumor had spread through D.C. that cops had released a black man accused of raping a white woman. White mobs took to the streets, supposedly looking for justice, but their actions were anything but just. They beat or killed any black people they encountered with no protection from cops or the government. The black neighborhoods saw that they were on their own, so set up barricades and sharpshooters for protection, which, according to Sarge, was ultimately enough to stop the lynchings. And like we mentioned before, this Red Summer actually happened it's a string of white supremacist terrorism in over three dozen cities in the summer of 1919 killing hundreds of black people in washington dc the police refused to intervene 
and it took four days before President Wilson mobilized the National Guard to intervene. But Sarge also had this detail right in that they defended themselves well. According to Wikipedia, the D.C. was one of the few race riots, heavy quotes on riot here, where white fatalities outnumbered black ones, 10 to 5 in this case. A brief aside, but being from Oklahoma, I can't help but think of the Tulsa race massacre here, which occurred two Absolutely. years later from the Red Summer in 1921. The stories are eerily similar. Mm -hmm. There's a sketchy claim of assault on a white woman. Frenzied white mobs react out for justice. And then you have a government that refuses to step in. While Tulsa is finally rightly being recognized for the atrocity that it was, it's sadly only one of an appalling number of similar events in U.S. history. Back to the comic. As Sarge is finishing up his story, Jack struggles to survive and he begins to see his ancestors come visit him. We end the issue with Isaiah telling the others that Jack has died, with Jack standing above with his ancestors looking down on his body. Issue number four is titled The Math. It opens with Faith Bradley at the U.S. Army headquarters in 1942. She's arguing to see someone to talk about Isaiah immediately. The Army officer that she meets with argues that there is no way she could have recognized the body as not being Isaiah, since everybody there in the explosion was burned beyond recognition. To which she makes the argument that she knows the difference between the charred body of a skinny white boy and her husband. She is pursued out the door by Corporal Eddie Himes, someone that she suspects was sent by the major inside the building to appease her due to them both being black. He explains to her that the reason there was a body of a white man inside his coffin was because of the way that the army sends out remains when there is an explosion and mass casualties. Upon hearing that there were too many bodies to sort through, and so she just got what she got, she sadly realizes that she won't be getting Isaiah back, which is awful. I mean, it, I know that that's a real policy. They just give you what they can, but it's still tragic. We cut to a gruesome scene in the Black Forest of Germany. Several of the super soldier unit are being killed. I mean, we see literally two of them dying in frame, uh, one being shot through the head, one being shot multiple times in the chest. Yeah, it's a surprisingly graphic, like, battle scene. Mm -hmm. For, for such a goofy yeah. art style. Yeah. Like, but yes, we see two of them being killed, while others are actively killing Germans. Um, in the end, only four remain. Isaiah, Maurice, and Sergeant Evans take a truckload of pharmaceuticals by the Coke Pharmaceutical Company as Private Larson is killed by a grenade as he revels in the strangling of a Nazi soldier. Maurice is furious that they have lost over half of their company over a few, quote, bandages, as he puts it. Then Sergeant Evans explains that they're just doing their jobs, and that's going to be what they have to do if they want to get home. We cut to Portugal, where we see Isaiah reading a Captain America comic. The sergeant chastises him for reading children's stories, and Isaiah talks about the bravery of Steve Rogers. Uh, in a very meta moment, Sergeant Evans looks directly at the reader and says, comic books aren't real. He goes on to explain that the army needed a Steve Rogers and that they were going to move heaven and hell to get one, referring to the trials that they've gone through and testing the super soldier serum. Maurice overhears them talking about Captain America and starts talking about the fanfare that Rogers had received while they were the ones that had been doing all the, quote, dirty work. Lieutenant Merritt, a white officer, walks up and starts chastising the sergeant and Maurice for 
disrespecting Captain America and goes on a racist tirade about how black people should not be allowed in the army at all. He weaponizes the news that Maurice's parents are dead against Maurice. The, the army had clearly kept this information from them. Yeah. They're basically cut off from anyone else, I think. Yes. Like, yeah. not just their families, but any other army personnel even. Yeah, they're definitely just being shipped around. Just just yeah. the unit. In the second show, when they're talking about, like, the black vine, right? Like, they're trying to also keep right. anyone from finding out about them. Yeah. And so, as a result, they're cutting them off from the rest of the world, too. That makes sense. I hadn't thought about that. And that's true. So Maurice punches Merritt in the face, which leads Sergeant and Isaiah to try and stop him. This escalates into a brief super soldier fight that ends with Isaiah thrown off the building by Maurice. And then the Sarge is crushed under a rock by Maurice, only to have Maurice himself shot dead by Merritt when he turns around to, I guess, continue attacking him. The comic ends with the colonel explaining how he has demoted Merritt and that Isaiah alone will be going on this suicide mission into germany we learn that isaiah has stolen cap's uniform and the comic ends with a very actually let me go back for a second so we learn that captain america is supposed to be there for this mission um i left that right. out of my little right up here so yeah this mission is supposed to be cap joining right. up with all of the other remaining super soldiers yes um, to go in and take out i think it's the facility where the germans are doing their own right yes they're doing their own uh coke yeah. experiments. Super, super soldier experiments so Cap is supposed to come in, lead them in there, and then take it out together. Um, but Cap is caught due to a typhoon um, in the Pacific and can't join up. So the colonel, instead of waiting because of the urgency of needing to get this super soldier serum out of the German hands, sends in Isaiah, uh, knowing full well that Isaiah will die. Um, so let me jump forward again. Um, Isaiah steals Cap's uniform because it had been shipped ahead of him, apparently. And the comic ends with an iconic image of Isaiah paradropping into Germany, shield emblazoned with the double victory eagle that he talked about a couple issues back that he had drawn on himself. Supporting Captain America's uniform, we finally see this new Cap. He won't be acknowledged by the military, but he is in every way the super soldier and American hero that Steve Rogers is. I mean, he really is Captain America. Yeah. That's right. At the Nazi concentration camp, two German soldiers walk the perimeter, considering that perhaps this isn't the war they signed up for. But their conversation is brutally interrupted by the swing of Isaiah Bradley's shield. We watch Isaiah fight, leaving broken, lifeless Nazi soldiers in his wake. And Faith Bradley narrates, This is what my husband had to become, a tireless killer, Pitiless, a stranger I'd never met. Bradley obtains boxes of dynamite and creates an explosion as a distraction while he goes after Dr. Koch, strangling him before breaking into his lab. Faith continues. Do not lose sight of your objective, they told him. Do not allow yourself to be distracted by whatever you may see, they warned him. Do not lose sight of your objective. But Isaiah isn't prepared for what he finds in Dr. Koch's laboratory. As he stumbles upon a room filled with seemingly endless rows of bodies on stretchers, piled high on tables and suspended in tubes, we see the shock and horror on his face. Faith's words are haunting. Do not consider what we did to you is what they didn't say. 
Think of the American lives you will save. Isaiah weeps as he tucks bundles of dynamite into the piles of corpses. Oh, Isaiah, you just think of me and our little girl. He runs as bullets clang off the shield strapped to his back. Isaiah, Faith says, do not stop for anyone. But he sees a group of naked women being herded into the gas chamber, and without knowing what it is, he rushes in after them to help. Isaiah, Faith says, do not forget you are only one man. The women who think he's been sent to kill them for sport attack him, but then the gas clicks on and the room begins to fill with it. There's a really beautiful and powerful panel where two women are shown only in shadowy silhouettes as the gas swirls around them and the tattooed numbers on their arms glow. Mm -hmm. Isaiah, Faith says, you cannot save everybody. Isaiah, just do the math. He passes out, and when he comes to, he is surrounded by German soldiers as he vomits. Another voice joins Faith's now, asking, so... Isaiah died at the camp? Isaiah, no. Whatever made you think Isaiah was dead? We turn the page, and we see now that the man asking about Isaiah is none other than the man most of us know as Captain America, Steve Rogers. He is seated at an unassuming kitchen table in the Bronx, across from Faith Bradley. I just want to say here, I think thinking on it as Sheridan was recapping it, I think issue five is probably, it's weird to call it my favorite of this series, mm -hmm. but because it's so dark, but it's, it's so well done. Like, yeah, there's, there's, I very, love, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Finish no, you it. go. <laughs> I love, uh, faith telling the story as we're seeing it play out in yeah. her yeah reaction to it um i didn't mention it but there's another panel after she talks about after she says isaiah just do the math we see a panel that's just the gas and in the gas are all of the glowing numbers from the women's arms yeah. just like yeah. floating in the gas it's really um Haunting. But heavy, yeah. but beautifully done. Yeah, haunting is a good word for it. Well, the cover art for this one is also um, all the numbers wrapped around Isaiah's face. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't realize what that was until you guys were just talking about it. And it's, it's also like, it's just so beautifully done and written because it's, it's actually very sparsely written. Like there's yeah. not a whole lot of yeah. text in this issue. And it's... I mean, to me, that shows real mastery to, like, mm -hmm. rely on the art to tell the stories so much. Yeah. Well, you see the determination in Isaiah's face. He knows he's going into this, like, to die. But he also is, I mean, he's doing it to, it's mentioned briefly at the end of the last ep the last issue where he's going to go in and do it for his family. Like, he's not doing it because yeah. the military is telling him to. He's not doing it because he, you know, has, um, I mean, he does have strong beliefs against the Nazis. But it's it's not 
that's not why he's doing it. He's doing this to protect like them. And that's also and for them. Yeah. And for them. And that's why you have like faith narrating this one too. Cause it leads directly into it. Yeah. yeah. That's going to come up here in issue six too, here in a little bit. <sighs> so we pick up in issue six, the penultimate issue with Steve Rogers five days before his meeting with faith Bradley. Steve, along with an FBI agent that we just met, Agent Spinrad. Spinrad? Is that how you say it? That's how I read it. We're going to go with Spinrad, readers. Listeners. Readers, listeners. You're both. All of those things. Anyways, so Steve and Agent Spinrad visit Philip Merritt in prison. Again, this is the lieutenant that was a aide-de-camp to the... uh, Colonel in charge, Colonel Price in charge of it, um, but then who was demoted when he shot Maurice Canfield. So Philip Merritt is now in prison, uh, clearly disgusted by Merritt. Steve soon remembers that Merritt was actually there when Dr. Reinstein was killed and pieces together that Merritt must have been the one to destroy the lab with the super soldier research. Merritt tries to deny it, but then they reveal his secret a warehouse full of Nazi memorabilia and also the tattered remains of a Captain America uniform. And during this whole time that they've been interviewing Merritt, he's just, it's like stuff that's just shy of openly racist at this point. We flash back to Isaiah captured and being asked to aid in the Nazi propaganda effort by by Hitler, (laughs) Hitler and Goebbels, Hitler and Goebbels. We flash back to Isaiah, captured and being asked to aid the Nazi propaganda effort directly by Hitler and Goebbels themselves. Hitler tells Isaiah, we have no quarrel with you Negroes. And then he offers to help free his people. This, again, is where Isaiah doing it for his family kicks in, in a strong sense of his family and who they are. Guys, no. My wife would kill me, he responds. Which is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's like it's a great panel. He just like looks at him and he's like, yeah. no. <laughs> I, I think he's I don't think he's scared no, of her. It's not th- it's not a fear. It's 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 like not wanting to disappoint her or let her down. Yeah, absolutely. So which again what makes him worthy of carrying the shield, being Captain America. Yeah. Yeah. From here, Hitler and Goebbels talk in German about how they can use still use Isaiah in their efforts. But their racism prevents them from trying to distill the formula from his blood. They opt ultimately to just kill him and send pieces of him back to the Allied forces. Back to the near present. Uh, In the prison meeting between Steve, Agent Spinrad, and the former Lieutenant Merritt. Merritt now goes on a full-on racist tirade. uh, Leading up to how he had a realization late in the war that... The war was, in his words, about keeping things right and pure, and we were on the wrong side. Agent Spinrad, who is black, counters Merritt by saying that he's half German and that there were many Afro-Germans that fought for Germany in World War II, and some of those ended up joining the resistance. The He goes into how the Nazi government didn't really know how to deal with these people because, like their racist ideology what of course would be not accept them but they were war veterans who had fought honorably next to them so they just kind of like 
either ignored them or some of the more troublesome ones they did ship off to concentration camps. Steve then steers the conversation back to the tattered Captain America costume, which Merritt says uh, the last test subject stole. Agent Spinrad reacts immediately, and so you can tell like he knows who he's talking about. That's the costume Isaiah Bradley wore? Steve has no recognition of this name. In, in a few panels, he's absolutely stunned to hear him called the Black Captain America. Agent Spinrad says he's known to every black person in America, and in fact was almost the subject of a movie by, with uh, Denzel Washington and Spike Lee. Steve is ashamed not to know, but Agent Spinrad gives him a pass since he was frozen for decades, literally. But still, I mean, come on, Steve, you should probably have known this. Right. I think it also makes sense that the military would have actively tried to keep this from, from Steve. Yeah, that's actually, Absolutely. that's probably true. Because, because he, I mean, they know they know he would they not know. expect it. No. Or sorry, not accept it. As they're leaving the prison conference, Merritt has the gall to Steve ask for Steve's signature. Once they are away and out of the cell, Agent Spinrad relates a story that his grandfather had told him. His grandfather, as an active member of the resistance in Germany, had helped to attack a German truck and rescue Isaiah Bradley, which we get. We get pictures of. So at that point, you don't know if it's actually real or if it's like just him telling it. But in Arlington National Cemetery, Steve Rogers confronts Colonel Walker Price as he stands by the grave of Harper Price, Walker's brother. He was a hero just like you, Walker tells Steve, someone else who never had to dirty his hands with the mundane realities of war. When Steve asks Walker about Isaiah Bradley, Walker scoffs, telling him that Isaiah Bradley is dead, despite rumors to the contrary. Steve tells him that he needs to know about the Super Soldier Serum Project and how Walker wound up running Coke International. As they walk amongst the gravestones, Walker Price explains the way that eugenics, under many different guises, has been used by those in power to keep power away from people of different ethnicities, the working poor and immigrants. He tells the story that before the First World War, eugenicists from around the world regularly met to discuss racial hygiene policy. Once Hitler took power, he sent the doctors Reinstein and Koch to meet with privately funded eugenicists in the U.S., those meetings, it turns out, are where Project Super Soldier was born. When war broke out again, Reinstein stayed in the U.S. while Koch went back to Germany. The project was split in two and the race was on. Now we learn clearly the truth behind the attack Isaiah and the others made on the medical supplies. It was actually a shipment of Koch's serum and testing supplies. And Bradley was sent in not to save anyone at the camp, but to destroy Koch's lab and set back German attempts at creating super soldiers of their own. Isaiah, of course, was never really meant to return from this mission. Price, meanwhile, has done well for himself after the war, stepping in as CEO of Koch International and apparently being given some version of the serum that yeah. has extended his life. It's not really clear, but 
there's something going on there. Yeah, it's it's heavily implied. Yeah. Steve Rogers is Steve Rogers, though, and he isn't content to let Price get away with everything. Steve tells Price that the back pay he received for the decades he was in suspended animation has left him with more money than he knew what to do with. At least more money than he knew what to do with at first, because he's found a use for it now. He's bought enough Coke International stock to make himself a shareholder, and he plans to use Merritt's testimony to get Price removed from his position and arrested for Major Brackett's murder. Days later, outside an apartment in the Bronx, Steve approaches Faith Bradley with a paper bag in his hands. Faith invites him up, telling him that she's been thinking about him ever since she heard that Walker Price took his life. They pass through the living room where a group of children wrestle. As she prepares a pot of tea, she says, So, you're obviously here about Isaiah. What gave it away, he asks. I can see the family resemblance, she tells him. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. This clearly is the conversation we saw snippets of in issue five. As Faith tells the story, we learn that Isaiah was saved by German resistance members, including Agent Spinrad's grandfather, who passed him along to the Belgian underground and then worked with the Red Ball Express to bring Isaiah back to the States. For those of you who might not know, the Red Ball Express was a real thing. It was a truck convoy system that supplied Allied forces at the front. Trucks emblazoned with red balls followed a similarly marked route that was closed to civilian traffic. The Express was planned in a 36-hour meeting, and it ran for 83 days. At its peak, it involved the operation of almost 6,000 vehicles, that carried over 12,000 tons of supplies every day, and it was staffed primarily by African-American soldiers. But as soon as Isaiah was back on American soil, he was court-martialed and sentenced to life in prison, all for stealing the Captain America uniform. He spent 17 years in solitary confinement at Leavenworth, before finally being pardoned by Eisenhower with the caveat that he could never tell anyone his story. However, Isaiah could not escape the tragic toll that most versions of the serum have taken on so many. Although he is physically fine, his mind has deteriorated, leaving him like a little boy in a super soldier's body. Faith goes to check on their grandchildren, leaving Steve in the hallway to stare at a wall full of photos of Isaiah with a wide variety of famous figures, most of them black. Finally, Faith comes back to take Steve to meet Isaiah. They shake hands, and Steve tells him, I wish I could undo all the suffering that you've gone through. If I could have taken your place... But all I can do is my duty to you and everyone else. That's why I'm here. Steve reaches into the paper bag he's brought with him, and he pulls out the tattered remains of the Captain America uniform Isaiah Bradley once wore in the war. Isaiah beams. In the final panel, Steve and Isaiah pose side by side, 
while Faith takes a photo for Isaiah's collection. Two captains, two heroes worthy of recognition. That's so good. It's really good. It was rage-inducing, even hearing you, like, talk about again that he's court-martialed and imprisoned for 17 years when he comes yeah. back. Like, yeah. For doing something heroic. Yeah. I mean, how many times have has Steve Rogers or other heroes, you know, stolen something they weren't supposed to yeah. take for before they go on a government mission? skirted the lot yeah yeah i mean and i think especially maybe coming off of brubaker's run thinking about bucky and like i mean bucky's brainwashed right but like still a man who is by all accounts a war criminal mm. um and yet who winds up in many ways being kind of taken into the fold even in unofficial ways winds up being made captain america uh, by yep. Tony Stark, uh, which is just a very different story than Isaiah's. And this was, I think this was written in 2003, I think I saw, mm -hmm. 2002 or 2003. And it just, I mean, it still honestly hits just as hard. It's very good. Yeah. And really like a history lesson. Yeah. It's, um, it's incredible how much history they packed into this, like, they really yeah. did their research and did it in like so many details are right. It's really impressive. It is. I also um, feel like they did a pretty good job with updating it for a little bit more modern times with the um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier version of Isaiah. Yeah. I, I, th I definitely thought it was interesting that, and I like that the new version, uh, has his faculties with him yes because you get to the end of this and it's like it's 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 i mean it's super sad to see him like that but also you just want to be you want his view you want to know what he thinks of all this and yeah. you just right. are denied that yeah he, i mean he's just he's a kid he's just happy to see a superhero yeah yeah i mean Which, yeah very but, sad <laughs> but seeing I mean, seeing how he would be, right, in Captain in the Winter, or sorry, Falcon in the Winter Soldier, like, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that was really powerful, too, and a good a good choice. Yeah, I think they adapted that really well. I wonder if we'll, uh, we'll ever, they'll ever dive into his backstory, like, more officially or not. Like, if we would get this miniseries as a miniseries or movie. I Probably hope so. not. I probably not. It'd be very dark for Marvel. Um, even with them doing a little bit more dark stuff more recently, I think it's still worlds beyond what they're yeah. doing. Well, and I think this is part of why when I say like Falcon and Winter Soldier is like my second favorite of the MCU TV shows so far, like this is a big part of it, right? Like I don't think the show is perfect, but I do think they were trying some things, yeah. even when they didn't execute them perfectly, that the other two shows have not. I mean, exploring not just issues of race, but um, the way that those issues of race have played out in 
human experimentation in our country yeah. um, until fairly recently, honestly. And the way that, yeah, uh, that that story does and doesn't get told. One of the things, the pieces of history that doesn't get named explicitly in this comic, but that I think is definitely uh, an influence on the story, uh, are stories of experimentation on uh, enslaved women. Uh, so the man who kind of gets credited as the father of gynecology really got his start by performing, frankly, brutal experiments on enslaved women, um, which is tragically why we know as much about the female reproductive system as we do. And the Tuskegee experiments were carried out uh, in yeah. the early 1900s, around 1937, I think, is when that starts. I, I mean, I think that ran that ran into the 60s or 70s, I think. It did. Yeah, it started in the 30s. And then, um, so for those of you who don't know, there were about 600 African-American men, many of whom were sharecroppers, who were recruited for an experiment on syphilis. They were being told that they would receive experimental medication, but they were never treated. Yeah. Uh, even 15 years into the study, when there was treatment for syphilis, they were denied any kind of medical care and were instead observed as they went blind and uh, lost their mental faculties and died. Um, so that experiment ended when the men in it died. Uh, it didn't yeah. end because anyone Wikipedia, intervened. Wikipedia says it ran from 1932 to 1972 and was in yeah. fact run by the United States Public Health Service and the Centers for, right. Centers for Disease Control. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Which I think when... When you think about that, makes this story feel likely, right? Like if we live in a world Definitely. where there is a super soldier serum, then it makes tragic sense um, that the early experiments in that would have been performed on African Americans, because it, that's often been the case in our yeah. country. If it if it happened in the U.S. in this time frame, in the early 1940s, it 100 percent would have started on African-Americans. Especially if it's ran by essentially a, scien a scientific cult of eugenicists. Yeah, right. we didn't get that into that too explicitly either, but like eugenics, I mean, the comic's not wrong there. Eugenics has, has a long history in the States as well. It was like explicitly um, endorsed by the Supreme Court in, I can't remember the name of the decision, but I think it was in 1918 and that wasn't, that wasn't overturned until much later, much later than you would think. Yeah. It was, it was essentially, it was an opinion that allowed the forced sterilization of mentally incapacitated people. So like handicapped people so that they couldn't yeah. reproduce. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's... And it's not an accident that, like, that's taking place in 1918 and 1919. We have the events of the Red Summer. In 1921, we have the Tulsa Race Massacre. Um, and also not an accident that it's 
in that same time period that we see the rise of Confederate monuments. So uh, people sometimes act like, oh, these Confederate monuments are actually like really historical and they're somehow like reminding us of this tragic period of American history. But the root of those monuments is really this incredible resurgence or maybe not resurgence, but surge of racism uh, post-World War I, where you had a number of African-American soldiers who came back expecting to be uh, recognized for what they had done for their country mm-hmm. and instead were massacred, honestly. Dude, I actually um, saw a good quote about this on uh, reading about it on Wikipedia the other night. So... W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, oh, published. I wrote this quote down too. I was about to read it. <laughs> yeah. Look at you, you guys. You go, you go ahead and read it. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I like your reading voice better. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so W.E.B. Du Bois uh, wrote an article called Returning Soldiers that was published in a magazine called The Crisis. And he writes, This is the country to which we soldiers of democracy return. This is the fatherland for which we fought, but it is our fatherland. It was right for us to fight. The faults of our country are our faults. Under similar circumstances, we would fight again. But by the God of heaven, we are cowards and jackasses. If now that the war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. So So that's in 1919. Really good. Yeah, that's so good. I think it should also be noted, just speaking of statues, that Robert Ely himself said, if we lose this war, don't erect statues in our name because there will need to be unity. Right. I mean, also worth noting, like when Seth was talking about Wilson not stepping in for four days, (laughs) with the National Guard, uh, Wilson was quite a racist and openly supportive of the KKK. Yeah. Also hated women. Big hater of women. Not a great guy, Wilson. And yet somehow ranks as one of the better presidents. Maybe not better, but he's like, He's he's probably above the mean. He's one of the more impactful ones. He made a lot of decisions. Listeners, that'll do it for us this time. Join us next time as we read Thor, God of Thunder, the God Butcher, issues one through five by Jason Aaron. Which should be a little lighter fare. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. You can find us on it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of death in the God Butcher. A lot of death. At least it's like fantasy. Right. But, it's, but it's, it is fantasy violence. Less though. racism, right? Yeah, less racism. Way, way less racism. But it is dark. It's less, I'm, like actual historical racism yeah this is fantasy darkness as opposed to real horrible things that happen right so it's like actual horror yes oh you can find us on instagram at amateurs assemble pod on twitter at the assemble pod and you can send in questions and comments to amateurs assemble pod at gmail.com you can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, as well as pretty much anywhere that those aggregate. 
Uh, you can find other shows like Moms Who Wine, Storm Season, Black Mesa Radio. You can always find us at blackmesaradio.com. Uh, I think that's about it. Do you guys have any parting thoughts? Avengers disperse. <laughs> Bye. I'm going to keep saying that until it's our actual tagline. It kind of is, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>